0: Pastor and author Rick Warren said, God is love. He didn't need us, but he wanted us. and That is the most amazing thing. I wonder sometimes if we really understand uh, the depth of God's love for us, the, the, uh, the lengths that he went to to save us before we even knew we needed saving. And especially, I wonder if we really understand what that says about how much we are worth. In fact, uh, I'm convinced that when we struggle at times in our lives with feelings of worthlessness, I'm convinced that we either don't know God, or if we do know Him, then we don't have any idea how much He actually loves us. Because if you truly know the God of the universe and you also know how much he truly loves you, then listen, you might struggle with a lot of things in this life, but believing you're worthless will not be one of them. The Apostle Paul was a murderer and persecutor of the church by his own admission, and yet he wrote, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even before we knew we needed saving, He made us alive together with Christ, Ephesians 22, 4, and 5. The apostle Peter rejected Jesus in a profanity-laced denial just before Jesus was crucified. Later, Peter wrote this about himself and about us. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. 1 Peter 1, 18 through 20. Jude, the brother of Jesus, who along with the rest of the family before Jesus' death and resurrection publicly accused him of being insane, doubting he was actually the son of God. Jude later wrote this to the church. Keep yourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life and have mercy on those who doubt. Jude 21 and 22. Listen, uh, these were all men who were very good at sinning. They were overachievers when it came to doing the wrong thing. And yet God chose to save them anyway. And although they still made mistakes, there was still sin evident in their life at times through the redeeming work of Christ in their lives. They literally went on to change the world for the sake of Christ. Listen, only because of what Jesus did in them, right? Paul was a powerful, influential leader long before he came to Christ. Peter was a successful businessman long before he came to Christ. Jude seemed to be doing just fine as far as we can tell long before he believed in and followed Christ. All of these men were getting along quite well for themselves as far as this world was concerned long before they came to Christ. And yet we wouldn't even know their names today or anything significant about them if it wasn't for the work of Christ in their lives. In fact, if after coming to Christ... They had tried to continue living their lives as they did before coming to Christ. What kind of impact do you think they would have had on the world? Right? Every meaningful uh, thing, every lasting, every everything uh, truly that made an impact on the people around them and generations since was only because they abandoned who they were before Christ, embracing who they were now in Christ. In other words, it wasn't until they, they traded in their past life past identity, even, uh, look, even their past achievements for the infinitely superior new life in Christ. It was only then that they discovered their true worth, which was also when they began to discover what they were truly capable of. And of course, uh, it's no different today, all right? You're never going to discover all that you can be as long as you're still holding on to what you, you used to be. You hear me? You're never going to discover all that you can be as long as you're still holding on to what you used to be. All right. Following something new always means leaving something else behind. And therein lies the problem for most Christians. We want to follow Jesus forward without letting go of what's behind us. We want to follow him, but we want to bring everything we're supposed to leave behind with us. And We see that interaction with Jesus of several people who wanted to follow him in, in Luke. And the net result of that is we get stuck in this life because we're being pulled in two different directions, stuck in between the life that was and the life that could be. And so we get bogged down somewhere between the past and progress, which is what happens when we refuse to fully commit to one life without the other. And uh, look, admittedly, it's hard. Right, uh, These aren't easy transitions to make. Jesus made no bones about it. Following him means leaving everything else behind, which he also made very clear was something most people would not be willing to do because we feel like we can't. We tell ourselves we cannot go where he wants to lead us. We cannot go where he wants us to go because of, because of where we've been. We, we look back and we say, you know what? I didn't get the education I needed to go where he's calling me to go now. Uh, We look back and say, I ruined my marriage, so I can't go where he's calling me to go now. Or, you know, I have too many other obligations in my life to go where he's calling me to go now. Or the truth is I made too big of a mess of my life for too long to go where he's calling me to go now. Or I burned too many bridges in my life to get to where he's calling me to go now. Or, you know, I've worked so hard to get to where I am today. There's too much to lose back there if I go where he's calling me to go now. Or, or maybe, you know what, maybe I'm just not in a position to go where he's calling me to go right now. And what you're actually saying with every one of those excuses is, Jesus, you're not enough. You're not enough to get me where you're calling me to go. Listen, there are only two certainties when it comes to following Jesus. One, it won't be easy. And two, Jesus is enough to get you there. Okay, the fact is there isn't one person in all of biblical scripture who found following God to be easy. Not one. So, so why do we think it should be easy for us? Right? He promised us that it wouldn't be. And yet, because he also promised us that he would always be with us, that means no matter what comes our way, Jesus is enough to get you where he's called you to go. Just ask Paul. Just ask Peter or Jude You know what? Just ask Rahab or Esther or Ruth, all people who had every reason in the world based on their past lives to believe they would not be able to go where God was calling them to go, except every one of them did go where God called them to go, accomplishing what they otherwise never could. And when you read about their lives, you'll find two things in common between them all. Number one, it was hard. And number two, God's redeeming work in their lives was enough to get them there. Even though I'm certain at one point or another, listen, I'm certain at one point or another, every one of them must have questioned their own worth. Right? Paul was a murderer. Peter was a liar. Jude was a betrayer. Rahab was a prostitute. Esther was an orphan. And Ruth was a destitute pagan widow. What's your excuse? Today we're finishing the story of Ruth and what an amazing journey it has been. It's all been building to this final chapter of the story with the culmination of all that God has been preparing her for. Her her whole past life has really been in preparation for what is coming now and it's finally being realized in her life and what is one of the greatest examples in all of scripture of the redeeming work of Christ in the lives of his people and what we can achieve when we fully embrace that new life in him, leaving everything else behind. Let's turn there now then to this final installment of Ruth chapter 4. and We'll read it together. We'll begin with the first six verses. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and sat down there. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friends, sit down here. And he turned aside and sat down. He took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit down here. So they sat down. Then he said to the redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. He's explaining this to the elders and the other relative. So I thought I would tell you of it and say, Buy it in the presence of those sitting here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not, Uh, Tell me uh, that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it, and I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. Then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Uh, If you were here last week, you'll remember that after Ruth proposed marriage to Boaz in the most dramatic way, he explains to her that there was another relative who under the Leverett marriage laws, under the Mosaic law, these specific Leverett marriage laws, he had the right, this other relative, to claim or redeem all of Naomi's deceased husband's property, including Ruth, before anyone else could make that claim. And therefore, only if that relative refused to redeem Ruth and the property could Boaz then redeem her and marry her. And yet, at the same time, Boaz makes it crystal clear that redeeming Ruth was his number one priority, if possible. And so as this final chapter of the story opens up, we find Boaz initiating the legal proceedings required to determine who would redeem Ruth and the property included in Elimelech's estate as he goes up to the city gate and sits down. Uh, The city gate in antiquity, by the way, was not only a social hub of the city as there were people continually passing through it each day on their way to work uh, in the fields and the threshing floor but it was also a marketplace, as we see in 2 Kings 7, one. It was a place of assembly where prophets would make official statements or share oracles of God to the people, as we see in 1 Kings 22.10. Uh, it was the location where the city elders and also kings often made legal rulings, as we see in Deuteronomy 21.19, 22.15, and also in 2 Samuel 15.2. So uh, this is where the official court proceedings and the official Administrative and judicial business was regularly conducted. It was basically the local courthouse. In fact, saying um, the phrase "gone up to the gate" that we see in verse one was actually an ancient idiom. It was a, a common Hebrew saying that meant to go to court. Okay, and and, and so the city gates in Palestine uh, in in the early Bronze Age were rather complex structures. They were complete, of course, with lookout towers for security purposes, but there were also a series of rooms uh, and other structures on either side of those gates. In fact, I was reading about some of the history and design of those early city gates, and in unearthing the 10th century BC gates at Gazer, located in central Israel today, there was a middle passageway about 13 feet wide and uh, with three chambers on each side, which measured just over seven feet wide and 14 feet deep each. And running around the three walls on each side of those chambers were plastered benches where business could be conducted when people could sit and do their business there. So at the gate, the city gate, Boaz waits until the other relative, this man who has the first right of refusal, right, the first claim to Elimelech's property comes by, and Boaz asks him to sit down with him. And then he calls 10 elders of the city to sit as well in order to witness and oversee this legal proceeding in accordance with the procedures for the Leveret laws outlined in Deuteronomy 25, uh, 5 through 10. And yet the Leverett laws did not specify exactly how you had to present your case. And, and so Boaz takes full advantage of that flexibility within the law to... Brilliantly work the outcome in his favor because keep in mind, this man is in love with Ruth. And so at this point, he'll do anything within the bounds of God's law to have her as his wife, as any man who is in love would do. And so he explains to this other relative that Elimelech's estate is available for redemption according to the law in Leviticus 25 25. And he outlines the specific piece of property that is available, no doubt a choice piece of land carefully omitting uh, while he's explaining the land omitting any mention of this Moabite woman who's a part of the deal Uh, probably so as not to allow this relative time to really consider the benefits of marrying Ruth who everyone in town already knew would be a blessing to anyone who married her remember back in uh, chapter 3 Boaz said to Ruth all my fellow townsmen know That you're a worthy woman—that was an ancient Hebrew expression meaning excellent wife. So Boaz presents the land as an obviously appealing acquisition, so as not to raise any suspicion of an ulterior motive. Because again, this relative probably already knew the value of that particular piece of property, but he conveniently leaves Ruth out of the conversation and waits for the man to accept the claim of redeemer, and only then does Boaz bring the second part of the deal on this relative and. Oh, by the way, the day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you also acquire Ruth, the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Boaz very carefully and purposefully points out that Ruth, first of all, is a Moabite, Israel's traditional enemy, that she's a widow, which means there's legal and material baggage that comes with her and that in marrying her, Ruth's offspring would receive the inheritance from Elimelech's estate, effectively removing any financial advantage attached to the land to begin with, especially for a man who already had children, which the relative points out. I I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Now, he could. He wasn't saying I physically can't or don't have the right to. He's saying I do not want to, lest I impair my own inheritance. In other words, if I accept this deal, then any gain from marrying Ruth has to be given to her children. The line of Elimelech, not the children I already have. And he's a smart man because he knows that's probably not going to sit well with another wife and other children. So although redeeming the land by itself would have been a good investment uh, because the land would be inherited by the Redeemer's own children, when you include Ruth in the deal everything changes in terms of the inheritance to his own children, not to mention any resources spent on redeeming the land and his, uh, raising the offspring. That would all come out of his own children's inheritance as well, since it would benefit the line of Elimelech. And so this sudden revelation about Ruth that Boaz springs on him changes the deal completely. And presented in that manner in which Boaz presented it, it seems like quite a bad deal for this relative, which was without a doubt exactly what Boaz wanted. So the relative yields his claim to Boaz, take my right of redemption yourself, for I cannot redeem it. And then at at great risk and cost to himself, in reality, Boaz makes the legal claim on Ruth and every part of her entire life. Okay, there was land that Ruth had neither the means, the resources or the ability to care for, She had an aging widowed mother-in-law that she had neither the means, resources, or ability to care for. Ruth was a foreigner from a pagan land, an outsider with a broken past. She was poor, a widow with nothing of value other than herself to offer to Boaz. And yet he makes a legal claim on her life and takes on the responsibility of every part of her life. The land, uh, the mother-in-law, the brokenness, the past, all of it, not only to save her and give her a future where she otherwise had none, but to enter into marriage with her, not because of what she had to offer him, but simply because he loved her. You see, Ruth's own worth wasn't defined by what she owned, what she had earned, or what she had to offer. No, her worth in the eyes of Boaz was defined by how much he loved her. And as we'll see, she fully embraced the reality of that in her own life, okay? Embracing the redeeming work of Christ in your own life means accepting the reality that you have been claimed by Christ. And to be clear, it is a legal claim. The Apostle Paul wrote, the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, Romans 8, 2 through 4. So Boaz paid for something that Ruth never could. And in doing so, he made a legal claim on her life. Listen, Jesus paid for something that you never could, your sin and the price of death that must be paid for that sin. He paid it for you. And in doing so, he made a legal claim on your life. And it wasn't because of what you own or earn or have to offer him. No, he made that claim on your life solely because he loves you. All of Ruth's debts and Naomi's debts, for that matter, were paid in full. You understand what that means? They no longer had to pay those debts. All of the indebtedness of your sin has been paid in full. You understand what that means? You no longer have to pay that debt. So why are so many of us still trying to pay for something that has already been paid for? Listen, if you're a Christian, if your life truly abides in Christ, then every sin you've ever committed has been paid for. What about the sins I'm struggling with right now? Paid for. Guess what? Every sin you're ever going to commit, paid for. God never wanted you to have to bear the weight and effects of sin in this world, and yet there are Christians today still trying to bear that weight in their own lives. As sons and daughters, we were chosen before the foundations of the earth to become fellow heirs with Christ, according to the Apostle Paul in Romans eight seventeen, to be a chosen race, according to the Apostle Peter, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, First Peter 2, 9. We were never meant to carry the weight of sin in this world, and yet it's a weight that so many people, I'm talking about Christians, refuse to let go of. So they carry it around in their lives every day. Listen to me. God never wanted you to carry that. He made a legal claim on your life so you wouldn't have to. And yet because mankind rejected him all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the burden of sin was thrust upon this world, which is now a broken place full of spiritually dead people because of sin. The apostle John said the whole world lies in the power of the evil one, First John 5:19. Paul said you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. This world is a broken place full of spiritually dead people, but Jesus came to change that, which is why he said the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Luke nineteen ten. So now, within this world, this broken place full of spiritually dead people, you have the church, which is a family made up of people who were once spiritually dead, but who are now spiritually alive in Christ. And if you keep reading the passage, Ephesians 2, verses 4 and 5 say, but God, right, we just read it, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. He bore our sins so that we no longer have to, which is why he was able to say, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light, Matthew eleven, twenty-eight 28 through 30. He bore our sins so that we no longer have to, so that we no longer have to. God never wanted you to carry the burden of sin, and now because of Jesus Christ, you don't have to. So why, Christian, are you still carrying that burden when it is not yours to carry? Why do you allow your own brokenness to make you feel worthless to the point that you believe you cannot go where he's called you to go in this life? Listen, I'm I'm not talking about pretending like our sin doesn't matter. Of course it does. Jesus died for our sins, but he also lived a life to show us what life looks like without sin as an example for us to live by. Our sin grieves the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 4, and it creates distance between us and God, according to Isaiah 59. So yes, absolutely we should feel great conviction when we sin and repent every single time. And in that moment, the closeness of our relationship with him is fully restored, Look, not because of the inherent value of our repentance, but because of the inherent value in the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on the cross when he made a claim on your life, canceling out the debt of your sin forever. So why do you carry that weight around? Well, I can answer that question. It's because of pride we give more weight to our sin than we do to his sacrifice that paid for that sin. It's us saying, Jesus, you're not enough. It's nothing more than pride. As Peter points out, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all not some, not the worst ones, not a few, not the ones from this week, all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. First Peter 5, 5 through 7, do you understand we're commanded to cast all of our anxieties, all of our cares, all of our burdens, the weight of every sin on him. It's not a suggestion. It is a command of God in anything. Short of that, according to Peter, is nothing more than pride. And so if you're holding on to the weight of sin in your life today, especially if it's keeping you from going where God has called you to go in your life. Look, Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, the hand of the only one who can actually do something about it, and then cast those burdens on him because they're not yours to carry, because you're not your own. You were bought with, with a price. He put a legal claim on your life, right? First Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. So repent of your sin, yes, and cast all of that weight upon the one who paid for that sin and then get on with the calling he's placed in your life. In the words of the English songwriter Stuart Townsend, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. Let's keep reading, verses 7 through 12. Whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. So a legal agreement is reached. And all that is left is to ratify the proceedings. So the relative uh, removes his sandal and hands it to Boaz, which in ancient Hebrew culture during the time of the judges was a symbolic act of a kinsman declaring his abdication, his uh, relinquishing of his own rights, his own claim as the redeemer to the next in line, which in this case was Boaz. And then the witnesses respond, and what a turn of events this was. Uh, when ruth first showed up at bethlehem with naomi not only did naomi not particularly want ruth to be there with her but the townspeople refused to even acknowledge her existence she was a moabite their traditional enemy she was husbandless childless homeless and listen as far as they were concerned she was worthless and now here she stands watching Boaz claim her as his own wife. And all the same people, along with the elders, say, we are witnesses, may the Lord make the woman who's coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. It's almost unbelievable. Her change in status, and in fact, it's much more than just a change in status because through redeeming Ruth, uh, the redeeming of Ruth by Boaz, she's given a whole new identity among the people of God. And that's something only a redeemer can do. And it is also exactly, by the way, what Jesus has done for you. Through that redeeming work, you've been given a new identity in Christ. Which means just like Ruth, you're no longer defined by your past. Because you're not the same person you used to be. Paul said, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 2 Corinthians five seventeen. Listen. Your past is there to learn from, not to live in. Which means in Christ, you never have to go back to your old way of living, your old way of trying to overcome your own brokenness, your old way of searching for wholeness in your life because of the redeeming work of Christ in your life. Now you are a brand new person. You've been given a brand new identity. And the reason that's so important for you to hear today is because some of you have been carrying around hurt and brokenness so long in your life that you don't know any other way. And in the process, you've forgotten who you really are to the point that you just assume it's your burden to bear as long as you walk on this earth. And so you keep going back to these temporary fixes, that help you for a little while, but ultimately fail to bring your life into true wholeness because none of those temporary things can do for you what Jesus already did for you. And look, every time you run to something or someone else to ease the pain of your past, of your brokenness, what you're saying is, Jesus, you're not enough. Jesus is someone to believe in, but I don't trust him enough to heal my brokenness. Jesus can save me for the next life, but he cannot heal my brokenness in this life. Jesus can save my soul, but he cannot heal my hurt. Do You realize how absurd that way of thinking is? Listen to me. Jesus came to make you whole, and he's the only one who can. So why do you continue to live in your past when Jesus has already given you a whole new future, a whole new identity? Well, it's because you don't truly believe, is that it? You don't believe Jesus is enough? King David, a man well acquainted with brokenness, once wrote, "'The Lord is near to the brokenhearted "'and saves the crushed in spirit. "'Many are the afflictions of the righteous, "'but the Lord delivers him out of them all.'" Psalm 34, 18, and 19. The Lord delivers him out of them all. You either believe that or you don't. David Wilkerson once said, what what is it about tears that should be so terrifying? The touch of God is marked by tears. Deep, soul-shaking tears, weeping. It comes when that last barrier is down and you surrender yourself to health and wholeness. Okay? Okay. Being a Christian isn't just about believing in something new. It's about becoming something new. Let's finish the story for today. Verse 13 to the end of the chapter. So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, sorry. (laughs) Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Uh, You understand it's the genealogy of the Messiah himself. How can it be? How can it possibly be that someone so seemingly insignificant, became someone so profoundly significant in the story of our Savior. She seemed so worthless to so many. It is solely because of the redeeming work of God, because of his work in her life. Ruth progressed from being a foreigner in chapter 2, verse 10, to the lowest servant, a step up in chapter 2, verse 13, to a maidservant in chapter 3, verse 9, to wife in chapter 4, verse 13, to a mother in the line of Jesus himself in chapter 4, verse 21. It is nothing short of astounding to look at Ruth at the beginning of her story and then again at the end of her story, and yet the truth is, as breathtaking as the story of Ruth's life is, it's no different than the story of your life, because just like Ruth, through God's redeeming work, you have been called to a new life through Christ, But listen, if you still see yourself as worthless because of your old life before Christ, because of your past, because of your sin, then you will continue to live as if nothing has changed even though everything has. Jesus can rescue you from your old life, but he will not lead you where you're not willing to go which is why there are so many Christians who are not actually living as if they've been given a new life in Christ, because they choose not to live with the kind of abandon our new life in Him requires. It's just another way of saying, Jesus, you're not enough. But listen, he, Jesus didn't call you to a life of moderation. You understand that, right? He called you to a new life that is anything but middle of the road. As we get older, we tend to become more balanced in some areas of life. At least we should be. And we learn moderation as we grow up, how to balance work and play and relationships. It's all a part of maturing and gaining life experience. And of course, some do that better than others. But when it comes to following Jesus Christ, do you know that there is actually no room for moderation? There is no balance. There's no part of our lives where we need a little less of Jesus so we can fit something else in to make for a healthy balance. No. no, It's not that we replace all of our relationships with Jesus, that we disown everybody. No, it's not that we replace our work with Jesus or stop having recreation for the sake of Christ. No, listen, it's that he's supposed to permeate all of that all of the time, everywhere we go, as he becomes the very center of all that we are and all that we have and everything we do. Everything, everything, everything for the Christian is supposed to be about Jesus Christ in your work, in your play, in your relationships, everything you do, because that's where new life is found in Christ, not in any of those other things. So what does that mean? It means forget balance when it comes to living for him. Forget moderation, swing the pendulum all the way to Jesus and let him rule over and dwell in every single area of your life and radically so, right? If you've, if you've ever experienced a moment in your life when you had to either be all in with something or all out of something, then you know what it's like to make those kinds of decisions. And I've said this before, generally speaking, most things in life allow for a certain degree of moderation. Following Jesus isn't one of them. Because following him into a whole new life, that is an all or nothing proposition and it's also the only pathway to overcoming your former way of living when you follow him so radically with such wholesale abandon that your new life becomes utterly uh, unrecognizable to those who knew you before. I just think about how many of Ruth's old Moabite friends do you think would have recognized her life had they stumbled into Bethlehem? The girl they knew is... Powerless, pagan, poor, worthless in their sight. Now the highly honored and respected wife of one of the most powerful, wealthy, influential men in all of Israel who desperately loves his wife, a woman who also happens to be a revered mother in the most important ancestry in all of God's people in all of time. What would they say about Ruth if they saw her now? I bet they'd wonder why. Why her? Was it something she did? Was it something she had? Was it something someone owed to her? No, it was none of that. In fact, every single thing that happened to Ruth, being redeemed by Boaz, given a new identity, given a whole new life, it was all for one reason and one reason only, because she was deeply and profoundly loved by Boaz, yes, but most importantly, by God. And it makes me wonder, if we really understand the depth of God's love for us, the links that he went to to save us before we even knew we needed saving and what that says about just how much we are worth to him. Well, I do know this. You're never going to discover all that you can be as long as you're still holding on to what you used to be. You have to let go of your sin. You have to let go of your past You have to let go of your old life and believing that Jesus is enough. Embrace the redeeming work of Christ in your life and then walk into a whole new life in him. Listen, there are two things you can count on after that. One, it won't be easy. And two, he is enough to get you there. Just ask Ruth. Let's pray.